0: Invite you tonight to turn in your Bibles to uh, Mark's Gospel, Mark chapter six, and we'll look at verses fourteen to twenty-nine. Technically, to verse thirty, as verse thirty ends uh, one large section. One of the things that's pretty interesting about the Gospel of Mark is that it's unfolding continuously, the identity of Jesus Christ as the Son of God. And, um, you know, you would imagine that, that, as with anything in the Bible, that it would all somehow center, come back, and be directly, or at least in an indirect, direct way about Jesus. Um, And what I mean by that is that, you know, the Gospel, in Paul's epistles, he's always talking about that but this is actually in the gospel where it's recounting Jesus' life and ministry the second of two instances in this gospel where Jesus isn't the direct subject of the story at all uh, in fact the one other time where Jesus isn't mentioned is when John is being is preparing the way for Jesus to come and you know in this passage and then that happens relatively early in Mark's gospel and is that fades off and Jesus begins his public ministry, you really don't hear from John again until this passage where we see his death. And it really signifies something uh, just like his preparation to what did. As you might remember from the 400 years of silence in between the ending of the book of Malachi and the beginning of the book of Matthew, that, you know, that, that page that transitions from you know, Malachi to the New Testament page in the middle to the Gospel of Mark, there's actually about 400 years of silence where God does not speak to the prophets or does not speak to his people at all. And so when John comes in, he's actually bringing forth the Word of God to the people of Israel for the first time in 400 years. He's representing that Old Covenant Testament as he's preparing the way for the New kingdom, Covenant Kingdom. But with his death, he's also showing a transition. A transition from him being the focus of one ministry for the people to Jesus being that. As a cessation in one way of the old covenant, the old ways of doing things, to everything being finally and fully brought together in Jesus in the new covenant. So that's really what this passage is signifying to us here tonight. That transition from the old covenant to the new covenant with the death of John the Baptist. Now, even though that might be true, there's a broader picture that I want us to have in mind. And after we read and after we pray, we'll we'll establish what that theme is. But I just want you to know that the broader context of it is is still that transition from the Old to the New Covenant with the death of John the Baptist. So hear now God's word from Mark chapter 6, beginning at verse, let's just say verse 13. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. This is after Jesus sent out the twelve to, to preach and to heal. Now King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Some said John the Baptist had been raised from the dead. That is why these miracle miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said he's Elijah, and others said he is a prophet like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said... John, whom I have beheaded, has been raised. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, It is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death, but she could not, for Herod kept him safe excuse me for Herod feared John knowing that he was a righteous and holy man and therefore he kept him safe and when he heard him he was greatly perplexed and yet he heard him gladly but an opportunity came when Herod on his birthday gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee for when Herodias's daughter came in and danced she pleased Herod and his guests and the king said to the girl Ask me for whatever you wish, and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, Whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half of my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, For what should I ask? And she said, The head of John the Baptist. And she came in immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry. But because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl. And the girl gave it to her mother. And when his disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. And the apostles returned to Jesus and told him all they had done and taught. There's the ending of the reading of God's word. Let's pray as we seek his face. Father, we thank you again for allowing us to be here tonight. I pray that as we have heard the scriptures read, that you will, by your spirit, work through that, but especially attend the preaching of the word as well. And I ask that you'll let the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. I ask this all in Jesus' name sure many of you have, had, have made a series of decisions in your life that you look back on and you typically look back on it and say, well, maybe I could have probably done something different in this situation or that. And, and here are a couple of those situations I'd want you to think about. Uh, perhaps you think about what would have happened if you took a, if you were at a particular juncture, you had two jobs, and you took one job over another. You look back and you said, well, what would have happened if I had taken that other job from the one you took, or you went to school for education, and instead of the one you went to, you begin to think about how things might have been different if you had gone somewhere else, had been there before. Or maybe still you made an investment at a you should have made an investment at a younger age instead of waiting till later. That sometimes tends to happen as well. But any host of decisions you may ponder, there can sometimes be a degree of regret to it. It's usually said, you know, I just wish I had done something differently. But what one of the things that we have to recognize in in making some of those sorts of decisions is we have to reconcile as time goes on. That, you know, we think about what could have been and we replay the event in our minds. You know, you may become sorrowful at one level or just maybe regretful, but then you also sit back and think, well, you know, that's just how life goes. But what about those sorts of decisions that you make in life that haunt you? Those things that you think that somehow, some way, may come back to bite you. How do you handle those? How do you handle those decisions that you've made that you are just so afraid will somehow, some way come back and bite you? It may not have been over anything that you've done, but often our sin and doubts lead us to a darkened conscience that's haunted by our past lives, our younger selves, but that the only remedy for a clean conscience is one that's honest before God and repentance and faith seeks his cleansing, and looks for his grace. Now, not all of us do that, and we see what happens in our passage today from one who falls into the category of living with a darkened conscience instead of coming to Christ in repentance and faith. Now, the Herod that we have here in this passage, Herod is mentioned throughout the Gospels, and it's always just listed as Herod, but there's always a different person in mind. In Jesus' birth narratives, when they mention the king, mention King Herod, they're talking about Herod the Great, usually, But in this passage, we're talking about one of his sons, King Herod Antipas, who may not have had commandeered the respect of Herod the Great. He may not have had the influence with the Romans of someone like Herod the Great, but he was no less wicked and ruthless, just like his father. And I just want to unpack for you just a moment before we get there, just sort of the wickedness of these people. Herod the Great, being the patriarch of of any of them, was a man who was known to squash rebellions with utmost brutality, He had seven wives himself and had children by all seven of his wives. And this man was so ruthless and paranoid that he even had three of his own sons executed because he was afraid that they were trying to take the kingdom away from him. And that's actually how Herod Antipas came to be a tetrarch of anything because it wasn't supposed to be his. This is the sort of family lineage that the Herodian dynasty is coming from. This isn't the first time we're introduced to them this is the second time in fact in john mark's gospel in chapter 3 we see there back there when jesus is teaching that the herodians and the pharisees who were not who were enemies over Those who on the one side being the Pharisees who believe that the Jewish law needs to be kept and the Herodians who say on the other hand, well we're Jewish but we don't keep the law. These two natural enemies as it were come together for their one singular purpose in life and that is at this point to destroy Jesus Christ. This is who the Herodians are, and this is who is before us here in this passage today. But the decisions that King Herod makes effectively doesn't do anything more than Hansen. And this isn't the first time that Herod is going to make such a decision in judging an innocent man. In fact, it's not the first time that a powerful man is going to inevitably execute an innocent man for simply doing what he was commissioned by God to do. And that's going to come later with Pontius Pilate and crucifying our Lord Jesus Christ, where he had truth standing at him in the face. And he still had an innocent man executed, not just for any one person seeking his life, but for the sins of the whole world. That sort of conscience that's on Herod's mind, that sort of conscience that even as it's seeking to unfold and build upon what's already been done as John has prepared the way and he's falling off the scene to make way more for Jesus, I want us to focus particularly on the depths of this man's darkened conscience where this man's doubts, and our doubts as well, can spiral into decisions that lead to a darkened conscience. Our doubts can spiral into decisions that lead to a darkened conscience. And I want to look at that in three particular ways. First of all, in verses 14 to 16, I want to show us what it's like to live with a darkened conscience. In verses 17 to 20, I want us to see what it's like to make decisions with, mixed with doubt. And then in verses 21 to 29, I want to see us to see those decisions that cause a darkened conscience. So living with it, ma- living, living with a darkened conscience, making those decisions mixed with doubt, and then decisions that cause a darkened conscience. Conscience. Let's look at that first idea of what living with one is like. And that comes particularly in verses 14 and 15, where that conscience begins to confuse him. Look at verse 14. Now, when King Herod heard of it, Jesus' name had become known, had had begun to become known. What's going on here? This is probably about a year elapsed of time between the time Jesus has come onto the scene and the times of these events that have taken place. Which also ought to tell you that Herod's, or that John the Baptist's own ministry has only been about a year in time, relatively short in the grand scheme of things. But what King Herod is actually having heard of is the sort of teaching, the sort of healing, and the sort of authority that Jesus has already been displaying. In fact, the most immediate reference that Mark is trying to get us to is to see the events that have just happened in Mark chapter 6, where Jesus is healing people in Nazareth, where he is rejected. He's sending out the twelve to do the very same thing, and he is hearing about it. The fame of Jesus is not just uh, confide, confiding to his own hometown to a singular place in time. Jesus' ministry in the last year has only begun to expand and build upon where he's already been and where John has already gone. The fame of Jesus is not staying just with the people either, but it's beginning to reach more and more the elites. It's beginning to reach more and more the rich and powerful. That's why Herod is, is hearing it. But notice how they begin to identify Jesus. They begin to identify Jesus as in a couple of different ways. Look at what they're saying. It's confusing here that they're calling him John the Baptist has been raised from the dead, presuming that John has already been killed. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. and. You can almost imagine why they would make that sort of confusion. You know, if you had two people in your life that were, you know, make, doing the same same thing, you would on sometimes get them a little bit confused. You know, people look alike, and that you say, well, they have some of the same antics, the same sort of speech, and you know, you kind of get them confused a little bit. In fact, uh, uh, on my phone, I have a picture of my great grandfather, and or yeah, my grandfather actually, and we look really almost alike. I mean, it's it's really scary how genetics work, um, and in fact, our temperaments have. have Pretty similar too. It's Again, genetics are weird. They're, they're kind of scary how they work. But still, you wouldn't confuse me with my grandfather. But they're doing so with Jesus and John specifically for the messages that they're proclaiming. If you look back at Jesus John's ministry, he does the same thing. He's preparing people. He's baptizing them. He's preaching repentance. But one of the things that's absent from John's ministry is the fact that he's working miraculous works. That's unique to Jesus' ministry. That's not unique to John. And so by virtue of the fact that they're saying you know, maybe John had been raised from the dead, what they're l- noting here is something really important about Jesus' identity. Something about, this ma- something about this is supernatural. Something about this man's power is supernatural. So therefore a supernatural work has come to where John the Baptist is now alive and now he's doing all of these things. They're making that sort of confusion because of the similarity of the message, and maybe this man has been raised from the dead. But still others, if you look in verse 15, are saying that he is Elijah. We alluded to it in Malachi chapter 4 uh, here a little while ago that Elijah was someone who would come to prepare the way for the Messiah, to come prepare the way for the new covenant. It's not Elijah because Elijah was, that image has already been fulfilled in John by the fact that he was wearing certain clothes. He had a particular message in terms of that preparation. Others thought he was Elijah, and some even thought he was as it continues. Others said he's a prophet like one of the prophets of old. Think of someone like Jeremiah or Elijah or Elisha, or even one particular prophet like that uh, that Moses has in mind in, in Deuteronomy chapter 18. Where one like Moses is going to arise and lead his people into freedom. There's a whole lot of confusion about who this Jesus is. But one of the things that's true for the people is also somewhat true and even more starkingly true for King Herod, and the fact that this is more than just confusing Herod, it's also darkened him to where darkened his conscience to where it's beginning to haunt him. It's haunting him in this way, because when it gets to verse 16 it says, When Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I have beheaded has been raised. What John has in mind here is that he has that same, we alluded to the paranoia of the Herodians. This same sort of paranoia is being put on display for King Herod because the fear at least in Herod's mind that if this really is John the Baptist and it's a judgment of God because God visits the iniquity of the sins of children to the thousandth generation of those who, who disobey him that this is somehow some way maybe a divine judgment of God and that he has raised John up to take his kingdom away from him and you can almost imagine what it's like John Jesus and John both have the have the command of the people have the following of the people have their own disciples great crowds are thronging to Jesus and that is one of the consistent things you see throughout the gospel of Mark is how many people are surrounding Jesus and seeing what he's doing This is a great deal of fear, of paranoia for, for King Herod, because if this man is back to life, and now he's doing miraculous works, there is nothing that he cannot do. There is nothing that he cannot command of me, and in fact, there is a good likelihood that he could very well take away my kingdom. This is haunting King Herod. It's haunting him because not just simply for the fact of judgment but for the fact that he might very well lose his kingdom. But there's a second thing in this text as well that this conscience is being that this is haunting him but there's also a series of decisions that are also mixed with doubt because that's because verse 17 begins to tell us more of the circumstances for why this this event this this ministry of Jesus is beginning to haunt Herod so much. Look at verse 17. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison. Now, why did he do that? It says this For the sake of Herodias, the wife of Philip, or his brother Philip's wife, Herod Philip, because he had married her, and John had been saying this, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. Now, if I had behind me here a screen that could sort of portray for you the Herodian dynasty, their family lineage, it's, it's really a rather expansive family lineage. Uh, you know, the, the intricacies and the nature of this relationship is going to startle you. It's going to be rather amazing to you, what, what the, the web of relationships that are going on here. Because when it says here that this is Herod's brother... And that this is his wife. This is a clear violation of the command from Leviticus chapter twenty that you are not to have your brother's wife. In fact, one of of Herodias' relatives actually makes it to where that Herodias is Herod's niece. So not only is he taking this man's taking his brother's wife, but he's really actually taking his niece. You see how the, this is the sort of convoluted nature that's going on here in this family in this family tree. How immoral and grotesque that they can be to where they'll rob someone of their, their spouse and even if it's someone as close as kin as their niece. This isn't even, doesn't even beyond the, go beyond the pale because as the rest of this passage goes on, it's going to continue to show you the descent of the wickedness of King Herod. But know what this message has been saying for John had been saying it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. John put him in Herod had John put in prison for the for the simple crime of declaring God's word. That's it. For just simply saying, Herod, you cannot have this woman to be your wife. She is not your wife. She is your brother's wife. This is a clear violation of God's command. And just just everything that's wrong with it, you need to repent and turn away from this. And so John had, was put into prison because he would begun to be, be a political threat as well as a religious threat as well. But it goes even deeper than that because it's not only Herod that has a problem with him. Matthew's gospel actually reveals that Herod wanted John dead as well. But he couldn't do it because of his sway with the people. And that is in large part because of what is said there in verse 20. Herod feared John knowing that he was a righteous and holy man. What charge could he bring? What thing could he say to say to the courts of the Sanhedrin or to anybody else? How would you execute this man without having some sort of revolt? And then not only that, you had the issue with Herodias. In verse 19, Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death, but she could not. This woman's singular hatred for, for John led her to, based on the language of the Greek, that she could not for Herod feared John. And so he kept him safe. That language there, she could not, but Herod kept him safe, kind of alludes in the Greek that there has been more than one occasion where King Herod, or where Herodias has tried to have John executed whilst he's been in prison. As, lo- as certainly as it's been more than once that King Herod, that uh, John has proclaimed this message to King Herod saying you cannot have this woman as your wife, so equally it's been the case that Herodias has been persistently trying to have him killed for it. Because the re- nature of that relationship has been such that really both of them wanted it and yet both of them needed to be told at the same time this is wrong. And yet note the relationship note the relationship that is put on display here in verse twenty, yet even while John had been put in prison, when Herod heard him, Herod was greatly perplexed, yet he heard him gladly. Language there is unmistakable; he was rather confused, he was rather astonished by the fact that this man could so boldly tell a king a popular known king. In Judah, that you are wrong. Someone who's just some guy in the wilderness. Some guy who's just been teaching time and time again about, you know, yeah, maybe he's right. I mean, there's a sense in which, by the fact that Herod is receiving this message gladly from John, that there's a sense in his mind in which Herod knows that John is right. That's missed from Matthew, but it's brought here on display in Mark. And yet, even while he's confused, he's astonished, he's, he's, he's perplexed by it all, he still receives God's message gladly because he knows it's right. And I, and I want to pause here and let us think about what, what's actually being said here. What you're actually seeing here on display is a man who has the rich riches, the power of this little area of his kingdom that's been given to him by the Romans And he knows that John is a righteous and holy man. He fears the people for the sway that he has. There's a degree in one way in which King Herod respects this man, John, for doing what he did and respects God's word for him. But as this passage later goes on to explain, that there was no change produced from it. And that teaches us something like this, that respecting God and his word is dangerous. In fact, it's very dangerous. Now here's what I mean by that. Because I'm an inerrantist. I believe that the Bible is the inspired word of God. And I don't just merely respect it. I love it. But see, here's what I mean by that. Simply respecting God and his word is dangerous because it allows us to say, at least as it's allowing King Herod to say in this passage, that I know that the man speaking is a man of God and I know that what he's speaking from is the word of God, yet our sin does not allow us to go any further than that because it would mean we would have to obey God's word in all that it says, in all that it says about adultery, drunkenness, unforgiveness, gossip, slander, and we could go on. What it's effectively saying here is that it keeps God's word at a distance. It might say this, that God's word may apply in these and other areas to other people, but it doesn't apply to me. In fact, in that way, the Bible cannot be brought to bear on your life in the way that John is trying to bring it upon Herod's life. And in merely respecting God and his word in this way, sinners go unchanged, sin goes unrepented of, and Christ's message, repent and believe the gospel, goes unanswered. And if when you or someone you know hear a message like what John is preaching, or what John is, at least what he's preaching to Herod, and it's only received gl- gladly is it's a good word, it's a, it's a nice word. It's pleasant. And yet that there, it's only gladly received with no change of heart, soul, or mind. There's only two realities that such can bring us to. And that's this, that either the gospel has not reached deeply into their conscience, yours or their conscience enough to make one sensitive to the call and commands of Christ, or there's no belief in the gospel at all, because ultimately those who are brought under God's word inevitably will change. They inevitably will, because the Spirit is working through the Word to bring that change. And it may be difficult, and oftentimes it's really rather challenging. A believer is not one, who, however, who only hears and receives God's Word like King Herod, but he believes and he obeys it as well. He doesn't just sit there in confusion. He doesn't just sit there in confusion yet receiving it gladly. He hears it, he believes it, and he obeys it, even when it's difficult. So that at least what can be said, his conscience before God is clear and clean, because he says, "I know Thy will, O God, and I will follow You." Yet, in the third and final thing that I want us to see here is the decision is to see that the decisions that John, that King Herod, undertakes is one that caused his darkened conscience to begin with, uh, to begin with in the first place, and that begins with making a rash oath in verses 21 to 25. Look with me, if you will, at verse 21. But an opportunity came when Herod, on his birthday, gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. The opportunity, the opportune time to which is being spoken of here is being, spoke, is being spoken in a way to refer back to Herodias's plans to have John killed. She, for a time at least, under Herod's, protection, under Herod's protecting John, just let it go. She just said, there will be another opportune time by which I can come in and have John executed for what he's saying and what he's doing. And that opportunity came at a birthday party that was unheard of in Jewish cultures at that time. It was, you just, you shouldn't do it. And particularly the type of parties that Herod is putting on. He has nobles, he has military commanders and all the leading men of Galilee. It's a really rather small region, but what he is putting on display here is how great he is in his one little kingdom. He has elevated himself to a place in his mind and in his day and in his culture where he really is Herod the Great, even though he's not Herod the Great. Verse 22 continues on with this, however. When Herodias's daughter came in and danced, however, she pleased Herod and his guests the sort of dancing that is going on here is less scholars somewhat divided as to what kind of dance it is i generally tend to go with the with the sense that it is some sort of erotic dance that leaves this man sensually aroused i can't imagine anything else because of knowing who this man is and knowing what he's done knowing what his own fathers and his own siblings have done there is nothing that prevents me from believing that this was some sort of incestuous, uh, really grotesque sort of uh, arousal that Herod has on mine. And it leads him to do and say something that he really wishes by the end of the story that he had not done, to where he says to the girl, presumably, again, this is how grotesque it is, so we're somewhere between 12 and 14 years of age, this girl, he says to her, ask me, what, ask, whatever you ask me, I will give it to you. Up to half my kingdom. I want to see. Want you to see the the the, the really crazy nature of this sort of thing. When Herod the Great passed, when Herod the Great died, his kingdom was divided in four ways, of which of which the individual rulers over his kingdom were called tetrarchs, and that's what Herod Antipas was. Everything that he had was given to him under the goodwill of the Roman authorities. There was nothing that he had that he could just willingly give without the Romans' approval. And so for him to make this claim was really bold, it was really brash, it was really even something that he could not give. And you have to imagine at some level that Herodias knew that. But this is just where this man's sinful, decadent psychology had led him. To where he could tell this girl, if you get ask of me anything, I will give it to you. And look what she does there in verse 20, 24. She went out and said to her mother, For what should I ask? And she said, The head of John the Baptist. She's finally getting what she wants. That opportune time where Herod is probably drunk and pleased and in every which way is finally able to get this man at his base nature, with his base senses, to finally give her what she wants. And what does the girl do? But in verse 25, she came in immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me, not tomorrow, not yet, at once, the head of John the Baptist on a platter. But one of the other things that we see here is the unwillingness for him to stop this ungodliness to begin with. He's already made a rash vow. And I actually want to stop there and think and have us think about what what the nature is of making uh, oaths and vows are are like. You know, we make oaths, we make vows all the time even in churches. We have vows for church membership that if we when we join a regular church that we will vow to uh, support the ministry and discipline and oversight of the leadership of this church that 's one of the things that we vow to and so any t- any sort of behavior that seems to seems to cut against that is betraying a vow that you've made before God and witnesses. Not only that you could say you can make a vow before God to say not watch any any movies for a period of time. maybe you decide to stop watching anything on screens. Forever, and yet what do you do but you go off and do just that, you have once again broken a rash vow from God. And such a mind that can do that is not only bearing false witness against God for anybody who could say, "You know, I'll take the penalties on this to, on the, of this oath if it's violated upon me. What it's saying is that God will not visit me the penalty for breaking this vow at all. And yet that is exactly what happens here to King Herod and that God does not deal kindly with broken vows, especially when it invokes his name. He is jealous for his name. He is jealous for his honor. And when any of us take vows before God and witnesses that we will uphold certain, certain things, we should do our due diligence to fulfill it to the nth degree possible that we can. Because what happens here in Herod's life and in his ministry is that all of that is eventually taken away from him. And that we get this. In verse 26, we see the king's reaction. The king was exceedingly sorry. He was exceedingly sorrowful because he finally realized that at this moment, he couldn't go back. Because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word. He was unwilling and unable at this point to stop what was inevitable. And in fact, he didn't want, he may not have actually even wanted to. He was unwilling, he didn't want to. He didn't have the courage to basically sit up and stand up and say, I was wrong. I shouldn't have promised this. And in fact, instead of seeking forgiveness, instead of saying, you know, let me find some other way to to deal with this, he just goes ahead with it. He plows through because he knows at least at this point that he has to do it because he would rather save his own face, he would rather save his own skin, instead of actually doing the right and godly thing by putting a stop to it in his tracks. Verse 27 says this, he immediately sent the executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in prison, and when the head was brought on a platter, he gave it to the girl, and the girl gave it to her mother, and when his disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in the tomb. And that ends the matter for John the Baptist. If you remember from what from a few weeks ago what Jesus said, that a prophet is not without honor even in his own kingdom, even in his own hometown, even among his own family, even among his own friends. This is one of those cases in which that is all the more true. And that Herod, or that John the Baptist rather, did what only a prophet would do. And that is to declare God's word and he let had his head lopped off as a result. Because a man like Herod was unwilling and unable to stop him in his tracks. Now in all of those things put together, there's been a question that I've been dancing around and trying to get us to a good point to do. And I want us to entertain this question now. You might come to passages in the scriptures and you say, you know, Holy Spirit, why did you put this here? Why did you put this story here? Yes, it's, it's good to know that this is the, the second instance where Jesus is not mentioned directly. This is only the second instance where John the Baptist is brought in. What's it actually supposed to illustrate? I think it's supposed to do something like this. This is being the only only second of those those things. It shows us something that what John something something that John already knew from one of the other gospels in which he says this that he being Jesus must increase while I, John, must decrease. John knew his life was only preparing the way for the Messiah, preparing the way for God's kingdom to come. He was the final prophet of the old covenant, making a way for the coming of a new covenant through the one who is the Son of God, who operates, yes, as a prophet, but also as a priest and a king to redeem a people for himself. John's exiting the scene proves his true humility, that he was only there to do one thing, and that is to prove that Jesus is not just a prophet, but he is God's Son in the flesh who came to save sinners. Yet it also shows something else. His death illustrates what will inevitably happen to Jesus as well and is in the same spirit of what Jesus said a few weeks ago, that again, as a prophet, is not without honor except in his own hometown. And that's this, if they are willing to kill a prophet like John, they'll do the very same thing to Jesus, completely unaware of who, he is, who is standing right there in front of them. They didn't know John's purpose. They guessed about it, uh, but they didn't actually know it. John had one person to hate him. And to seek it, and that led to his death. Yet Jesus' identity was not only questioned; it was outright ridiculed and outright denied. He not only had one person in the Jewish Jewish land seek his death, but he saw the whole nation seek him. And Jesus was also one that's like this. Jesus did it knowing his mission was like John's in this one way, which is inevitably that his life would come to an end and that he would die. Yet John prepared the people for what only Jesus would inevitably come to do. And that is to be, as John says in another gospel, where he says, Behold the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sins of Of the world. As one author that I was reading put it this week, John the Baptist died because of sin. Yet Jesus Christ would die for our sins. And in all of that, we see where that darkened conscience led led this man, led King Herod, to execute that of an innocent man that would inevitably happen to Jesus as well. But there's one thing I want to leave with here tonight before, we, before I conclude, and that's this. Do not resist the pricks of God's word on your conscience. Do not resist the pricks of God's word on his conscience. And the reason why I'm saying that is because if you look back at verse 20, it says that when Herod heard him, he was greatly perplexed, yet he heard him gladly because at one level he knew that John was right. And in any time that God's word is brought to bear, there is always that sense where even in in our kicking and even in our screaming, we know that God's word is right. And that when he pricks our conscience, it's one of those telling signs of God's love for you. And the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ to you is that he gives you no peace over, your, over sin you harbor in your heart and mind. It could be something you've never told anyone before, or maybe only a few. It could be something you've done recently. It could be something you've done years ago, but you've never f- repented fully and honestly to God or anyone over it. Yet at the same time, if God pricks your conscience, then answer it in repentance and faith. That's the message of this whole gospel. That's the message of Jesus. That's the message of John. Answer that in repentance and faith because Jesus died for sinners that they may be cleansed and restored. And if you are such a sinner that clings to Christ by faith, he is working on your conscience. He is working on your conscience for sin. You have committed and that is not a sign of God letting you go. But it's rather a sign of God drawing you back to himself. And God pricks your conscience of sin so that you can see your need for the cleansing blood of Jesus that you, that'll come, that if you will come to him, to Christ, he will give it to you. This past week I heard a message that really, it was at Second present it left me in tears when I was thinking about it. And he was talking about it from 1 Peter chapter 5 where it was talking about Christians who were dealing with a great deal of suffering. And there are four things that Peter lists in that passage. But the one thing that stood out was when it said at the end of it all that Jesus will confirm you. Jesus will justify you. He will never let you go. He will confirm you in your heart that you are indeed a Christian if he is seeking to bring you back to himself. And the hope of the gospel is in this. And even when he pricks our conscience to bring us to himself, is that Jesus is drawing you to himself that you may be firmly in his hands. And the hope of all of that is that when you are in the hands of Jesus Christ, he will never let you go. So let your consciences be clean before him, that he may clean it and restore you, that you may not live with someone like King Herod, where your dark, where a darkened conscience makes you numb to sin. But is tender. That is Isaiah says in Isaiah forty two. Where that there is a bruised reed, whose conscience is tender before the Lord, He will in no wise break. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that you do indeed uh, not deal with us as our sins demand, but you bring us to yourself. And I thank you, God, that even while John may have died because of sin and how sad and unfortunate that is that even a prophet of God cannot have the honor and respect that a a prophet deserves, Yet even while he died because of sin, you died for our sins. And I pray that you will remind us of that, that we might plead the blood of Jesus Christ in our own hearts and in our own minds. And so God, I ask that you will confirm those truths in our own hearts and minds. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Our closing hymn tonight is hymn 562, All to Jesus I Surrender. Hymn 562, we'll we'll, uh, only sing verses 1 and 4 of hymn 562. Stand with me as we sing.